0: Episode number 62. And the message isn't, the more we consume, the better our lives will be. The message is, the more we grow, the better our lives will be. Welcome to the Torah Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the tools and inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Meterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitra with this week's Torah podcast. The Torah portion of the week is Chukos, how to be free, defining your needs. We're going to have a powerful parable about the endless travel, a great story about Rav Shach, and peace in your home, apologizing. And now, the Torah portion of the week with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. So the Pasha starts out with the enigma of the red heifer, the duma. And God commanded us to burn the red heifer and that we would mix the ashes with water. And this substance was able to remove the impurities that were caused by touching a dead person, which is the highest level of impurity that exists. And today, everybody's tamayimis. We don't have the red heifer and we cannot remove that impurity from our midst. But the strange part about it was that it was able to purify those who received it, but those who made it became impure. And that's why Shlomo Melech said, I will become wise, but it was far from me. It was a chok, a mitzvah that we don't understand. It's called the classic chok. That's why this week's part is chukos. It means the laws that we don't understand. We don't have reasoning behind them. There's no logic. But many of them, before she to explain the timing of the mitzvah, they want to give the potential reasoning behind the mitzvah, And so the Mabum explains like this He says, when an entity loses its original form, it doesn't just disintegrate to nothing, but actually reverts to the complete opposite, which would mean that the more refined something is, the more pure something is, when it disintegrates, it will go to the highest level of impurity, and not just become nothing. And we see this, for example, if a tree dies, so al nothing happens, it died and it became dirt. But if a cow dies, which is a higher level, a higher, more developed being, So we know that it becomes impure. It's an availa. And if someone touches it or moves it, they become impure and have to purify themselves. But the highest level is when a human being dies. We know that if a human being dies, the entire room and everything that was in that room becomes impure and needs to be purified. And the impurity lasts for seven days. So he wants to explain that even though when a person dies, his highest level of his soul immediately leaves. But the middle level, which is called the ruach, That part of his soul stays with him, depending on his spiritual level. And it's not released from the body. In other words, if the person was attached to his physicality, so when he dies, the highest level of his soul goes up, but the middle level of his soul is stuck, still connected to his body. And really, our job during this lifetime is to work on ourselves to desire spiritual things and to run after mitzvahs and have true values which will uplift our soul which will free it from the physical desires. And therefore, when a person leaves this world, his entire soul goes up right away. Which means every individual has a part of them, which is both spiritual and physical. And the more it develops spiritual, so it disconnects from the physical. But if its whole life is materialistic, so it will be totally connected to the body. Even after the body has passed away. And it's only after the body has completely rotted, at that point, the person will be able to go up. There's a famous story in the Gemara, who one time a pious man was forced to spend the night in the cemetery and he heard two spirits conversing. So one soul said to the other, let's go up and see what's going on behind the curtain. So the other one said, I can't go up. I'm buried in a mat of reeds. What was the problem? He was buried under a mat and therefore his body did not rot. And he was still connected to his body so he couldn't go up. So what does it have to do with the red heifer? He says, the cow symbolizes the body, strong and mighty, filled with life force, like a red heifer, that's why red, filled with energy and vibrancy. What do we do? We take that cow, we burn it to ashes until the life force separates completely. We burn it up completely because ashes are not susceptible to ritual impurity. Then what do we do? We mix those ashes with water, and we sprinkle them upon the people and the things that were in contact with a dead person, and the impurity that they have gets drawn towards the purity of the ashes. In other words, the ashes are completely pure because normally something that has vitality, when left, it becomes impure. But if you take the ashes and burn it completely, completely, so there's no impurity left, that's why we're able to take these ashes and purify other things with them. So he says like this, The commandment of the red cow thus stands as an allegory for the individual to purify his spirit while he's still alive, to end his dependence upon materialism, and to remake himself as an independent spiritual entity, free of all material entanglements. So we learn from the red heifer what's the toxinus of our lives. Our toxinus of our lives is to develop our spirituality and to cling to purity. Because as long as we cling to the materialistic world, in the end, we're going to be impure. But the more that we cling to the spiritual, the more pure we're going to be. So I want to explain how this practically applies to us. We don't have to become hermits. We don't have to become monks. We're Jews. We have to live the Jewish lifestyle. So I want to bring the Malbam again and what he explains at the end of the Parsha. At the end of the Parsha, what happened? The Jews were traveling to Mitzrayim. And they wanted to pass by Edom. Edom didn't let them through. So they had to go around. And as they were schlepping, they said like this, Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, and there is no water, and our soul is at its limit with this insubstantial food. What are they talking about? The man. They had food. They had the man. But they were sick of the man already. So what did God do after they complained? It says, God sent the snakes, the burning ones, against the people, and they bit the people, and a large multitude of Yisrael died. So the ones that were still alive, they came to Moses, and they said, We've sinned. Pray to Hashem that He removes the snakes from us. So Hashem told him, Make a seraph, take a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who's been bitten will look at it and live. So Moses made the snake of copper and placed it on the pole. So it was that if a snake bit a man, he would stare at the copper snake, and he would live. So the Mahbam explains that this scenario is very similar to our earlier scenario. There is Adam and Eve and a snake. So what happened? The Jewish people were not satisfied with the food that they had, and they wanted better food. So in the end, they got bit by a snake. How is that similar to Adam and Eve? He says the man is like the higher soul inside the person the intellect, the woman is like the body of the man, and the snake is the lower desires. So what happens? The lower urges constantly poison the body by enticing it towards unnecessary desires and towards sins. It eventually becomes a dust-eating snake itself, base, internalizing a base materialistic nature. It's like the snake bites the man, and the soul itself is poisoned and died every sin he says is snake-like so what did the people do they came and they said take away from us these serpents our inner serpents our physical desires so what did Moses do he held up the snake on a pole he said listen I can do it you can also do it I overcame my desires you can also overcome your desires it was to symbolize the potential elevation and sanctification of our lower urges internalizing his message of overcoming the base urges and elevating them toward spiritual purposes. The inner snake ceases to rule over one's heart. Consequently, the external snake loses its ability to harm. In other words, when the Jewish people overcame their inner desires, the snakes from outside stopped biting them. But I just want to be medactic exactly in a certain word that he used. He said yeserah, unnecessary desires. The lower urge is constantly poisoning the body, enticing you with unnecessary desires. That's the problem. There's nothing wrong with desires. We're human beings. We need to eat. We need to drink. We need to procreate. That's not the problem. The problem is the extra desires, the unnecessary desires. That's where the Yitzhak comes in. And that is the problem with our society right now. We're at the end of the day, just before the Mashiach. The Satan has let loose. And what is he let loose with? Materialism consumerism. Our whole society is now based on consumerism, creating desires for things that we don't really need. And we are all sucked into it. We can't escape it. It's everywhere. And it really just started right after World War II. I want to quote here the famous economist Victor Lebo. This is from 50 years ago. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions and our ego satisfactions in consumption. The measure of our social status, our social acceptance, our prestige, is now found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today are expressed in consumptive terms. It's unbelievable. The greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and accepted social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, the pattern of food, serving, and his hobbies. We need things consumed, burned out, worn out, replaced, and disregarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, drive, live with ever more complicated, and therefore constantly more expensive consumption this is the problem. and This is the antithesis of Judaism. And this is Kulo Yetzirah. And this is against what life is about. And it's the final war of the Sahara of the evil inclination against the world. To get people obsessed with consumerism. They make commercials to tell you your life is no good. And how are you going to make it better? By buying things. They're training us to have desires that we don't need. That's the Yetzirah. That becomes a spirituality, that becomes the upliftment, the going to the mall. A person uplifts themselves by buying something. But the satan is using this to take everybody off track from their real purpose in life. And when a of Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who also speaks on the Duma, he says like this, the fundamental truth is threatened by the sight of a man submitting to death, for the human corpse demonstrates the power of death for all to see. The person goes to a funeral, he's he a dead person there, Everything's different. The superficial observer perceives in the corpse the power of nature dominating everything, including man. But the power of Duma teaches us something different. It does not teach man to close his eyes and ignore the physical. It teaches man the contrast that he has inside of his own nature. For on one side he's mortal, and the other side he's eternal. On one side he's tied up, on one side he's free. He has physical powers and moral powers. So he says, Do not be misled by the sight of the corpse of death. Become free. Become immoral. Not despite, but along with all those aspects of your existence. That's the reality. You have both realities happening at the same time. He says, Preserve your tahorah. A person has to preserve his holiness, his purity, his purpose in life. That's what the doom is teaching us. That's what the doom is teaching us. We sprinkle this water on, even though a person touched death and was in contact with death. We sprinkle this water, and this water purifies them. There's a potential for purity, for holiness. So Rav Schwab comes and explains the famous Chazal that says, Let the mother come and clean up for the child's mess. What is I talking about? The paraduma, the red heifer, is coming to clean up for the sin of the golden calf. The child is the paraduma. Let the child come and clean up the mess of the mother. The Jewish people did a vote of Zarah. What is a vote of Zarah? Connecting with physical things. They wanted something physical. They wanted something. Moshe left, so they wanted to make a para. They wanted something physical to follow. Why? Because life is physical, isn't it? What are you spiritual? I don't know spiritual. I don't see it. I can't feel it. I can't touch it. Life is cool or physical. So let the para do come and clean up that mess. Because what happens when a person sees a dead person, they say, that's it, it's over, it's finished. That's the end of all of us. That's how we're going to end. He says the Paraduma cleans up that thought, that idea. Because by burning the cow and bringing it to the point of ashes, where it's completely destroyed, at that point we can mix it with water and there's life. There's purity. It can purify. There's another stage. And he wants to explain why is it that the Jews complained about the manna only now? They were living on manna for 40 years. At the very end, they have to come and complain. The answer is at that point, they started to go around Edom. They were going into cities. And they got a chance to taste real food. And after they tasted the real food, they said, that's enough with this weak bread. We don't want this stuff anymore. So he wants to explain that a person who starts to draw pleasure from the physical world, He's going to have a hard time getting spirituality. But what's the bracha? We know in the benching it says, you will eat and be satisfied. And the Torah's kahalim explains there. What do you mean you'll be satisfied? You don't have to eat so much. The blessing is the food that you do eat has enough energy in it to sustain you. That's the blessing. Not that you have to stuff yourself. And that was the man. The man was pure, holy. It was perfect. You didn't need more than that. You didn't need more than the man. It was only once they started to taste the physical food again, they started to get drawn towards it. But that's the same idea. If a person had man and he had this food, this unbelievable food that sustained him all day with energy, would he need more? No. But if you're brainwashed from the morning to the night, that you need more, your life stinks, and you have to buy more and get more and more, so you start to believe it and you start to follow it. So Revolvi explains, when it's said that Aaron shall be gathered to his people, Rashi said there, why did the Torah emphasize that this conversation took place near the border of Edom? Since the Yisrael allied themselves with the wicked Esav, Edom, they lost the righteous man. Because the Jews wanted to go in the ways of the nations. They allied themselves with the nations. Let's live their lifestyle. Ravobi says, We truly do not understand the danger of living among the nations. We're so used to living in gullus that we don't realize the extent to which our people have been influenced by it. We mimic their actions, copy their thinking, absorb their culture, speak their language. And this is what we have to fight as Jews, this is what we have to fight, the Gullis, the exile, 2,000 years in exile, not to be influenced of this culture of consumption, that buying things and having things and eating things, that's the the ruchnius, that's the spirituality, that's what happens. This this soul, the middle soul gets used, the soul which has the potential to disconnect itself from the body and be pure, instead connects itself with the body. And we're being influenced by the culture. And we're all part of it, it's everywhere. It's the biggest philosophy that has ever existed in the world. It's a philosophy that is spread over the entire world. Compulsive buying. And the philosophy is the more we consume, the better our lives will be. Buying will make you feel better. And we have to constantly replace our desires with new desires. And we have to have the newest model and the best thing. And it's all fake and phony and false. Judaism tells us real spirituality comes from learning Torah, from growing our minds, from ideas, from self-development. Happiness comes from inside. It doesn't come from outside. That's what the world's telling us. You want to be happy? You want to be spiritual? No problem. Buy a new jacket. Buy a new car. And it never ends for 120 years, constantly buying and buying and buying. But this is not the way the Torah. We have to re-educate ourselves. We have to re-educate our children to show them the beauty of the Torah, the beauty of the mitzvahs. Not that everything is physical, and that's what the Paraduma came to teach us. Not everything is physical. There's physical, but there's also spiritual. And the message isn't the more we consume, the better our lives will be. The message is the more we grow the better our lives will be. Here is a powerful parable to open your mind and help you reach your potential. So the Magi Meduma explains on the Pasuk is like this. Zos This is the statue of the Torah. Shlomo Amalek said on that, I will become wise, but it was far from me. So he gives a mashal like this. One time there was a wealthy villager who wanted to travel to the end of the world. So he prepared a carriage, he got first horses, he got food and drink. He got together with his servant and started out for the trip to the end of the world. After the first day, the wealthy man traveled 300 miles. They stopped at in an inn to rest and they started to con- talk to the people inside the inn. Each one was talking about their travels. So he said, I'm traveling in the world and I already traveled 300 miles today. But someone else in the inn said, yeah, but you got a lot further to go. So what do we learn from that? Shlomo Amalek, the wisest of men, wanted to understand the secrets of the Torah. But the more he learned, the more he realized that the Torah is deeper than the sea. And no matter how far he went, there was no end. And that's why he said, I will become wise. But it was far from me, just as far as before I began. I haven't really gotten anywhere. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. So the verse said, and they wept for Aaron 30 days, the entire house of Yisrael. Rashi explains that the entire house, why it says buy it, the entire house, base Yisrael, because it was also referring to the women. They also mourned. Why? Because we know that Aaron would pursue peace and bring love between husband and wife. It says that Rev Shaq's door was constantly open to anybody who needed to speak to him. If a husband or wife had a problem with their marriage, everybody would come in and speak. So one time, just after Rev Shaq had a difficult, difficult operation, He was very weak, and he was an old man already. But he heard that one of his students in Yushalayim was having problems with his marriage. So he decided he's going to go speak to the student's wife. He's going to make the trip from Bnei Brak to Yushalayim. So he spoke to the doctor first, and the doctor told him, Listen, you must stop at least three times along the way, leave the car, and get some fresh air and rest. So that's exactly what he did. He brought a portable easy chair with him, and he paused a couple of times during the trip, and he would rest. Then he got to Yerushalayim and he spoke to the man's wife. And all this for the sake of Shalom bayis, Peace in their home. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. There's no marriage without friction. It's impossible. And therefore, we have to learn how to apologize and how not to repeat the same mistake and how to restore the relationship. So one time somebody asked Rav Simcha Cohen, I was told that a lot of Baal Tchuvahs, a lot of people who returned to Torah, it's because they had some kind of death in the family or they had a divorce or some kind of financial losses or personal sorrow. Is that true? So he said, yes, it's true. So he said, I don't have to be observant. None of that stuff happened to me. So I explained to him, that's not really the point. Those things just cause the person to reflect. But any healthy mind that would reflect and think about how they could have lived differently or do things differently, they would also come back to Torah. They said people who came back, it's not because of emotionalism. It's because they thought out things to the end. And they must be willing to change themselves. His logic tells them to change. They changed. These are deep thinkers. These are people who thought things out. And it's universal to everybody. So he says so too in a marriage. Every day in a marriage is small little mishaps. Things that go wrong. And really, we should use those opportunities to think things out. Why things are going wrong. What's going on. How am I behaving? And there's many reasons why a marriage doesn't go smooth. First of all, there's a lot of differences between people in general. Just different kinds of people. And the values of one are not the values of the other. And what one spouse brings from their home, the other spouse doesn't like. And one's more spiritual. One's more physical. So there's no way to avoid arguments. But the thing is to learn from the arguments and not to constantly repeat them and to stay away from the sensitive spots. So what usually happens, instead of talking things out, everybody holds everything inside and it starts to build up and the bitterness builds and there's no connection and then I don't feel like being around that person. So what's the solution to that? The solution is two words, I'm sorry. We have to learn to apologize. He says... When you say sorry to your mate, you're telling them it wasn't deliberate, it was a result of human error, and I learned something from this and I won't do it again. And if you don't apologize, you're just going to spend all your time making justifications for your behavior. And also if you do apologize, you're giving your spouse an appearance of importance. You're important to me. I want to apologize to you. Not apologizing could be worse than the original thing you did. You did a small thing wrong, but the real thing you did wrong was by not, not apologizing. Because the other one thinks, even if it was unintentional, if it was unintentional, why didn't he apologize? He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care that I'm hurt. He doesn't care that I'm upset. So if you don't apologize, the, the wound deepens. And it's very hard to live with another person who doesn't at all apologize. Especially as time goes on, because you have all this time to apologize, and you still didn't apologize. Apologizing is a powerful tool to improve your family life and people will never say them sorry. You're going to destroy the relationship, especially when it comes to, let's say, embarrass your wife in public, or you insulted her, or you had demeaning behavior, or you're warmer to your relatives than you are to her. So what do a lot of people do? They apologize, but the minimal amount of apology. I gave a case of one time the husband came in and said to his wife, I apologize, I apologize. And the wife says, I don't remember. He said, yeah, I said, it was something stupid that just slipped out of my mouth. So that's an offhanded apology. That's not a serious apology. People need to hear, I'm sorry, I was wrong. So instead, what do people do? They'll buy the other person a present, but they won't say they're sorry. So that's evasive. Nobody wants that. The other person, I don't want to live with a person like this that buys me a present when they do something wrong instead of saying they're sorry. But the fact is, it is difficult to apologize. And I want to end off with a joke that he brings about this. One time, there was a rabbi and a chazan. So the chazan, the one who his for the seaboard, he insulted the rabbi. So the rabbi brought him to the rabbinical court. And they said, listen, next Shabbos, it's true you insulted him in public. You have to stand up in public and say, I insulted the rav, and I said something about him that's not true. So word got around town and everybody shows, Shul next Shabbos, there's hardly any room. They're waiting for the chazan to stand up and say, I insulted the Rav, and I said something not true about him. So the chazan stands up and says, I insulted the Rav, I said something not true about him. So the rabbi jumped up and said, Is that how you ask for forgiveness in that tone of voice? So the chazan said, He said, Listen, rabbi, you're unquestionably the authority on the law around here. But when it comes to tomes, I'm the authority in this town. So Bezrat Hashem, next week we're going to speak about why it's so difficult to apologize. Okay, that's it for this week's Torah podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share it with your friends, and please leave a comment on iTunes. Thank you for listening. To get more enthusiasm for your Judaism, become a free member at GlobalYeshiva.com.